You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists, long-form one-on-one conversations with veterans in the arts. The show is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today was Stefan Wolfert, who um, first kind of popped on my radar when I, I can't remember how or why I stumbled onto his website, but I did. And I saw that he was using Shakespeare to help veterans therapeutically. And that alone was fascinating to me. And I saw constant mentions on his website of uh, decruit and decruiting and decruitment. And I didn't totally understand what that was. And I'm going to set the table a little bit for you guys to fully appreciate this episode. Stefan and I don't get into uh, too many good 30,000 foot views of decruitment or of his work until later in the episode. So I want to make sure you have enough context to appreciate what we're talking about in the first part of the episode. And decruitment, just so you're aware, is uh, the term Stefan coined to describe reversing the recruitment process that obviously the military gets you ready for war and you're put in a pipeline that gets your, your head right um, for what's about to come. But obviously we all know there's uh, that that doesn't happen on the back end. that as you're leaving deployments or leaving the service altogether uh, there's, you know, we're not great at preparing veterans for civilian life or for reintegration into civilian life. And, you know, just, the standard demobilization process doesn't really is is not really the answer. It's a kind of a bureaucratic um, box ticking, but it's it's not actually giving holistic options to veterans and allowing them truly to um, unpack their experiences and be prepared to take the next steps forward. And that's what Stefan uh, is really pioneering. And I think that's all you need to know in order to appreciate everything that he and I start to talk about. I guess the only other little bit of level setting I'll do is to talk about his show, which I saw after I'd stumbled onto his website. Uh, It's on YouTube. You can see the links uh, in the show notes. But his show is called Cry Havoc, and it's really two parts. The first part is autobiographical, um, unpacking the trauma of his childhood and trauma he experienced as an infantry officer. Uh, in the nineties and witnessing the death of a close friend of his uh, in, while they were engaged in a live fire drill and were fired on by mistake uh, in a Bradley fighting vehicle and kind of what that did to him and how that resonated throughout his life uh, is one heck of a story. Um, But then the second half of cry havoc kind of gets into historical anecdotes about war trauma and, and what have you that I think any veteran can relate to and appreciate. But what's also unique is that, that both halves of that show feed off of Shakespearean monologues. And uh, Stefan, we'll talk about that in the episode. You'll hear a whole bunch of details, but that's uh, two of the things I think that need a little bit of context for you to fully appreciate everything we talk about in the episode. I, I should say when I saw cry havoc, um, I, I may about 15 or 30 seconds in, you just know you're in the hands of a masterful performer and storyteller. And it's uh, incredibly compelling and forget even about the therapeutic value. I put that aside for one second, just entertaining 
uh, the entertainment value of the show is uh, outstanding. It's just, it's enthralling. It's really, you blink and 30 minutes have passed. Like it, it's just an incredibly compelling piece of theater that's been worked so well and so expertly. And Stefan is, is really a masterful performer. And fortunately for us, he's also great at giving interviews. So uh, you'll hear, you'll get a good taste of what he is capable of. Uh, I think just even in this episode. So I can't let me shut up so you guys can get to it. Uh, and I don't take any more time from Stefan. If you don't already know it, I'm just thrilled that you will get to find out about recruitment and cry havoc. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director of vet rep. And this is the savage wonder of Stefan Wolford. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Listen, I'm really thrilled to have you on. I, I got. Uh, let me start as I like to do with complimenting you robustly, um, and I like to do this with all our guests just to kind of establish goodwill and bona fides. And I never really have to force these compliments. In your case, I really don't. I saw Cry Havoc um, on YouTube. I watched it. I, first off, your website fascinated me. It fascinated me what you were doing. So I, you know, that's why I wanted to talk to you anyway, because this just looked incredibly interesting. Watching Cry Havoc, though, um, I guess the best compliment I can give is I was incredibly bummed that you've been as successful as you have been, because I was really hoping <laughs> that we could do a whole lot of stuff together. I was like, oh, man, I've got so many ways that we, I, I would love to do so much stuff with them. Uh, it was an incredible, incredible show. Uh, do you Thanks. still do it regularly? Do you still perform yeah. it regularly? Yeah, there's so much in what you just said. Thank you, first of all. And and I love that you consider uh, us a success because my wife and I literally live in a sprinter van. Um, we, we converted a sprinter van with our friend uh, Brian Judd at Casecraft. And uh, yeah, we travel. And then to your question, do we still do it? Obviously, during the pandemic, we've not performed live. We we went two years. Um, we were at Norwich University, a, mm -hmm. a military uh, university. We were in residence. Uh, I had uh, were about to perform "Cry Havoc." I think it was that night, on our way out the door to a class, and the lockdown happened. Two smash cut to now. Uh, two years ago, we are literally in a hotel at Norwich, just finishing up and having performed it two years later. So, but up to. Um, before the pandemic, I'd performed it, we estimate, over 500 times. Um, yeah, and Cry wow. Havoc. And, and now I just did my first one. And in the pandemic, my wife and I came up with three new Shakespeare. Uh, my wife and I came up with three new Shakespeare adaptations from a trauma narrative or veteran's perspective in some cases. But um, yeah, those go up in New York this summer. But we're just beginning back with Cry Havoc. So maybe let me let me dive into that a little bit. What What's... Can you describe the relationship between you and Dawn creatively? Is she, did she come from the theater also? And so that there's kind yeah. of a give and take and a natural partnership creatively? Yeah, yeah. we met, uh, if I don't mention it, we're married and we're also <laughs> partners in, uh, in life and in business. Which I, and, I, and I should say for everybody, I mean, Dawn plays a pretty pivotal role in Cry yeah. Havoc. I think it's safe yeah. to say uh, yeah. it's, a, it's yeah, yeah. one of many things. It's a great love note that I think any wife, any spouse would appreciate getting uh, and, and to show how much she means to you. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, creatively, I didn't know she was as involved. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we met doing the Scottish play, just for those mm-hmm. who might be superstitious, um, Shakespeare's McBee. Uh, but we were in Los Angeles 2003, 2004. She had been a really successful TV actor. Origins were in theater. She had come, you know, in, in Hollywood for women and people of color and women of color of a certain age. The gap was narrowing. She is, as I... Um, if I can tell her story, that bit of it anyways. Um, and she found her way back to the theater. Um, she had been, but, but the, mm-hmm. we met at a theater company and um, worked together for, what, I don't know, a year or two years. Weren't dating. We were just trying to get our own lives together. We were both having our own uh, issues with post-traumatic stress disorder, which we didn't, weren't really recognizing, commiserated about. Um, and found and, and shared how much the theater did for us. I was already also working with Native Voices Theater Company in Los Angeles and Native Earth up in Canada, which openly used, and to borrow their term, theater as medicine. Mm-hmm. So p- part of my fascination with being able to work with them is to be able to just observe and, and not take, but to observe and learn and see sure. what... How does this, how, how do, because I'm way, I may be way off. You can wrangle me in by no, the way. No, it's all right. No, you're good. But, you're good. but in grad school, you, you know, which I completed in 2000, they were so hardcore about, and most of the theater companies that I was working with were so hardcore about theater is not therapy. You know, you do therapy, check your, check right. your emotional baggage at the door. We're making a play here. But for me, there was no difference. You know, for me, I was better, and by better, I mean... I was able to, my, my, my addiction, my ADHD, my PTSD, all the alphabets that are after my name that are yet to be officially diagnosed, but I'm battling, were better, were reduced, were diminished when I was on stage. All of the things that trauma was robbing from me were actually more present when I was rehearsing, when I was doing theater, when I was being creative. I had more self-efficacy. I drank less. I was, you know, my PTSD, my depression, everything was lower. And when I stopped, it wasn't. So to me, it was a lie to just say, to say well, check your baggage and we're not therapy. It absolutely was. And Dawn and I met talking that she felt the exact same way from a different background. Mine, military uh, and, and childhood trauma, which I didn't know yet. Hers, also childhood trauma, racialized trauma, genderized trauma, coming together and realizing, oh, this shit does the same thing for both of us. Yeah, let's let's talk more about this and expand. And yeah, can, can I, I, I I'm, I'm asking, I'm not telling by any stretch of the imagination, but I want to throw it out there. Is it possible? Because I, I just to be clear, I was acting back then myself because it was pre 9-11 and I was going to acting school in New York and, and all that. All right. And I remember hearing the same thing. You know, uh, it's not therapy. Get out there, and yeah. especially when it comes to Shakespeare, right? Acting on the <clears throat> words. Otherwise, the plays are going to take five hours if you're trying to feel right. everything. So right. let's not go through catharsis, you know, on stage necessarily. But yeah. is it possible that a lot of that also is just you finding your purpose, and that somebody that, that if somebody wasn't necessarily uh, meant, let's say, for the theater, they might not find that catharsis necessarily, but that you did because this was your path. Yeah. Uh, yes and no. I think okay. I, I think that um, both both just like in Shakespeare's characters, both are true. Right. Mm. Richard's a villain and he's not um, that argument. He has from his nightmare and, and McBee as well, as we were talking about. And can cry lanes and on and on and on. But I think that <clears throat> excuse me, I think that we this is shifting now because of what we've just been through for the last two years. But I, I think that 
we've just been in denial about the the power of the mm. arts. Yes. I think we've been um, diminishing the arts. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, yeah, I mean, even when Don and I would first go into rooms talking about using theater as a mental health tool in like the early 2000s, we were literally laughed out of some rooms. Really? And, there were, and there were two where we went in for funding and I felt humiliated at one of the foundations because they were mo basically asking me questions, half, not all of them, half the panel were mockingly asking questions. Well, now we smash cut to, I can't keep using smash cut. I don't know why. <laughs> you're so successful, my, you're moving to film. My, yeah, right, 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 right. There, right <laughs> it's right, my dream right. I'm projecting, yeah. Um, but, but, but now, you know, that not only do we have, thanks to Alicia Ali at NYU, do we have published, you know, data that shows that, yeah, theater does heal, but then many others, and Bessel van der Kolk in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, talks about the value of of theater and the creative arts and healing and, and Kathy Melchiotti and all these folks that are not only proving it, but then when we look at Strozier, um, there's a, a psychologist by, or psychiatrist by the name of Strozier, S-T-R-O-Z-I-E-R, -E was working with a, a, a activation warning. Uh, mm. I'm going to mention 9-11, but not in detail. So anyone listening, um, but uh, Strozier worked with survivors from 9-11 and what he found was when they were describing, they, they'd not yet processed the trauma. This is right after. They hadn't, what we call, they hadn't done what uh, we tend to describe as integrated the trauma or processed the trauma. It's still fresh. And, and we subscribe to the, the, the belief that trauma is a, an experience. It's not a memory. It's a physiological experience. So when I when that comes up when I for me as I talk about cry havoc that smell of diesel exhaust is not a bad memory mm -hmm. it's a physiological recalling of the event it's uh, my my cingulate gyrus goes offline I lose track of time my body goes into hyperactivation as though I'm back in that uh, armored personnel carrier I'm there my and we know this because we've done brain scans Bessel van der Kolk again in the body keeps the score did brain scans to show that parts of the brain that let us know I'm right here in this time and place go offline. I lose use of language. I, use, I lose use of understanding other people's language. That's why saying, get over it or come back to me or just breathe doesn't work because I can't even hear. I'm physiologically back in that place and time having that experience. But, but Shakespeare creates a template from within which we can breathe and express, have language for our experience, breathe and say the next bit, and use metaphor. And this is what Strozier found with his, his uh, you know, patients, I think that's accurate mm -hmm. to say, his patients that when he recorded it, not for public sharing, but for his own, their file, he was recording the sessions. His assistant, as I understand it, was transcribing it. So they were writing it out, that person was writing it out, and they were doing it in prose from one side of the page all the way to the other. But when he read it, he couldn't make sense of it. So he went back and listened to their, their, their narration with the pages up, with the, with the document up. And whenever they took a breath, like I just did, he hit return. So with each new breath, he created a new line of text. And lo and behold, what he found almost uniformly was that people spoke in verse and very often with iambic pentameter wow. in, in that. And, and also used metaphor when we were not able to describe, right? They would use simile yeah. and metaphor because we can't 
adequately find yep. the language for it. So Shakespeare was already writing in the language of unintegrated, unprocessed trauma. So chicken and the egg, egg and the chicken. Did you read that and start to develop kind of your ideas or were you already doing that and this started just kind of already, already doing that, already wow. found that a friend of mine from, from grad school uh, was, has Tourette's had and has Tourette's. And we, we talked about this when he was on stage, especially with Shakespeare, he found that his symptoms diminished, that the ticks and the, in the, I hate the word symptoms, the, the behaviors, the manifestations of Tourette's in him diminished when he was on stage, in particular speaking Shakespeare. And for me, I found that when I followed the, you know, the, at first I was resistant. I'm like, what? Breathe before each new line. Why wouldn't I just do the whole thought? But when I breathed in before each new line, uh, as like Shakespeare and Company and Louis Sheeter, the late Louis Sheeter, may, <laughs> may he rest in power, from NYU, they were very um, strict about breathe in before each new line. And at first I didn't understand why until I experienced it and realized stay in regulation. It, helped, it prevents me from getting stuck in that one emotion, in that one experience. It forces me to breathe and go to the next thing. And because he's this, that poet, Shakespeare is so brilliant, I can fully experience it through rehearsal. I can fully experience that line, breathe in, move to the next one. And now it has a drive. Now it's taking me through my experience. Now it's not only allowing me to, to drive through that trauma that normally kept me stuck in a loop, but it does the same, can do the same thing for the audience. The audience member can hear and associate and go, oh, but I can't get caught because I got to keep up. I got to keep up. Right, right. Have you read, I, I remember reading a study um, that you probably are going to know verse and chapter of, but where it said that if you're trying to process trauma, uh, and specifically, I think referring to service members, but they said, um, just as a tactic, they said, take them out for a beer because then we get to talk and then you have to stop and drink. And that's mm -hmm. the chance to breathe. And if you just try to sit in a room and talk with somebody, yeah. it's going to be hard. And this stuff is going to get locked up. But you got to give that chance to breathe. And so they said, have snacks, go to a bar where you have peanuts yeah. that you have to put in your mouth and drink beer. Had you read that? Had you I hadn't. Heard that? Yeah. I hadn't, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. You know, we get that with the, the early on, the smokers would be so apologetic because especially in New York at that time, you had to basically stand in the street to smoke, you know, the poor, poor things. So I, I would go out with the vets and we'd, you know, afterwards without trying to be too annoying, point out out that what they were literally doing was the definition of self-care. Even though they're smoking a cigarette, they're removing themselves from the stressor, taking them a, a place to go away with either a, a smaller like group. And when they light up, what's the first thing they do but inhale, mm -hmm. tend to hold it in, and then exhale for a longer period of time. The ritual of it helps create a new container of self-care. And then the breathing ends up being more like box breathing. Yep. By the way, Shakespeare wrote in box breath, if you will. <laughs> and so, so it's all these di uh, different versions of the same thing, uh, of roughly the same thing we're trying to do, which is create a space where we can share or just be. We don't have to necessarily share. To breathe together, to be, dare I say, intimate you know, and honest or as Shakespeare put it, to speak what we feel and not what we ought to say, or dare to be silent, because for many of us, being silent is, it feels like life or death. But to be in that, 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 
mimetic experience that feels like life or death and have some coping mechanisms, whether it's, like you said, a, a beer, whether it's, we don't, we, shame is at the root of so much of the stuff. So we don't shame. If you're, if you're, you know, smoking, if you're drinking, if you're using to get by, we're, we're not out to go shame you and say, you got to stop doing that. You're, you're getting by, but let's look at what you're using as mechanisms to get by. And perhaps we can replace some of the things that are taking away from your life, if you're ready, and transfer the same, the same idea, but with different tools. You shouldn't have said that last part. I think a sponsorship from Philip Morris was coming right behind. <laughs> if you were bridged there. No, but listen, it's, it's an, it's an, it's interesting and valuable um, uh, thing that you actually bring up. And I think that is incredibly important because it is so hard with the veteran community to uh, close that gap and get into anything remotely approaching new agey or holistic right. or yogic breathing in any way, shape or form. So looking for those bridge mechanisms is important. Yes. Which is ironic because the military uses, or, or perhaps a paradox uses these exact same things to wire us for war. As I talk about in the show, the tools that they're using are rhythm, breath and community. And those are the exact same tools that, that whether you're having a beer or having a smoke or a group therapy model or AA or Al-Anon, they're all roughly using the same thing of this moment of mindfulness, which is the, I, I share this a lot with the veteran when we're in, this, in the room is the, uh, I'll show, share in the slides a, um, a page right of the marksmanship manual. There was a day when I had all these uh, field manual <laughs> numbers memorized. I don't at the moment. But the marksmanship manual shows that for single targets, breathe in, exhale, hold your breath, squeeze the trigger in between the heartbeats, continue breathing to find the next target. There's so much in that because there's breath, right? There's the breath, there's the heart regulation. So they're already using that. And then why do we tend to pull the trigger? Not, not, not for God, mom, and apple pie, but to, to fend the brother and sister to my left and right and behind me. There's the community. And then as well, notice the language that we use, target right, to dehumanize the person that we're trying to kill. They can't be a target, they have to be enemy. They have mm -hmm. to be, I mean, they can't be a human, they have to be a target, they have to be enemy. So we have to use language as well. So they're using the exact same tools to wire us. So why not use those tools to unwire? I wanna, there's so much I wanna dive into and I, I'm yeah. struggling to figure out which one to ask in what order. Let me start with this. Let me start with picking up where you just left off. Um, you quote in Cry Havoc from Dave Grossman, or you refer to his, his work, which I was glad because obviously there's so many parallels. And one of the uh, pieces, one of the sections in On Killing that always stood out to me was his thoughts on intraspecies violence and how no species, every species, whether it's whales, whether it's bugs, whether it's us, is wired not to kill the other. We're, we we want to posture or submit. We want to make somebody submit or we want to posture and look bigger. Yeah. That's why yeah. bar fights rarely end up with death, but they do end up frequently with, you know, somebody talking smack and standing strong and, and puffing their chest and doing all that. Yeah. And he said, so, uh, so he talks, you know, or writes very eloquently about, um, you know, the value of posturing and submission and how almost only sociopaths just have to, they have to dehumanize and, and are naturally dehumanized. Uh, inside their species to actually kill something yeah. inside their species. While we don't think of it at all with other species, 
interspecies where we're happy to swat a fly or kill a mosquito or whatever, um, right. hit a squirrel. But yeah. amongst our own species, there's that mass natural hesitancy. Yeah. So what I, where I'm going with this is when you talk about the nature of military training, which is undoubtedly true, that there has to be a degree of dehumanization and removal of the barriers to killing something inside your own species. Yeah. My first, here, here's, here's emotionally how I reacted when I heard you talking about that in Cry Havoc. Um, I kind of felt like that's an inside veteran conversation. Mm. And here's why I was like, I don't, I think so many civilians are so separated from the military experience that it's easy for them to hear that and hear you saying, Hey, listen to the language, listen, how do we dehumanize and immediately go, you know, gasp and clutch pearls and rent garments and gnash teeth because they're going, Oh, these, look what they're doing to these uh, kids. They're turning them into savages. Um, whereas among in the veteran community, we can look at that and kind of have a bit more context around it because we kind of understand that on some level, war is necessary. And if we are the instruments of war, then this is what it takes to execute what sadly is sometimes a necessary mission. And I think sometimes that nuance is lost on a civilian audience. Am I overthinking this or is that is that ever resonated with you? Absolutely. No, I, I, I've caught flack for sharing things that, that were considered part of the veteran experience exclusively. But my point is, uh, in doing so, and, and the veterans and civilians that I've worked with now for over you know, 20 plus years, is that this, is an, this divide that we keep talking about, right? Mm-hmm. The veteran-civilian divide is not a new problem. It's an ancient... Well, let me rephrase, actually. Uh, regroup, that the effects of military training and war, the effects of that are ancient. And we mm-hmm. know this because the ancient Greeks wrote about this, right? The Sun Tzu sure. wrote about this, right? Every culture has has these stories and the versions and, and used in, in the Greeks' case, they used theater as a, as a tool to, to purge the poison from war. Um, but then in the last... I don't think this is necessarily a newish problem, but certainly since Shakespeare's time to now, the last 400 years, we seem to have amnesia about the effects of military training and war. That we seem to go, wait, what? Why are they? Why are they so messed up? We only sent them to go kill other people in our name, and our life really wasn't affected in any way, shape, or form. I had to make zero sacrifices. I'm over it. Why can't they? So our point is, let's let's pull back the curtains on the wizard, if you will, to just be honest. Again, this is the power of theater, right? The power of theater is supposed to be, Shakespeare said it, to hold up as twere a mirror to the world, Mm. to show what what we all know to be true, but we pretend not to know. And that's the reality, is that sending young people to combat zones, and apparently we're on the verge of it again, right? That when we can, when they come back, we seem there, there's where the pearl clutching comes in. Oh my, why why are there so many suddenly homeless? Why is there a spike in homelessness and addiction and right and 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 all yeah. the stats, yeah. the suicides and what have you? They seem astounded, but it's it's not new information. So I'm not revealing a secret. I'm speaking the truth, the uncomfortable truth that yeah. when we train people for war, there's a cost to yeah. everyone. To everyone, and the, and the pretend pretend it's not there is it, it, well. Look where it's gotten us. 
Well, no, absolutely. And I, I, I guess I'll, I hope that, that to the, whatever it is now, 92% of, of Americans that have never served uh, or had any association with the military, I hope that they understand there's a difference between a diagnostic on the second and third order effects of war versus whether or not war is just or whether or not right. that I, I feel sometimes that distinction may be lost. And I say that again, this is kind of my thing. <laughs> it's not, uh, I think where you're coming from and what you're presenting is infallible and is incredibly important and is something, but it's definitely that tender, soft underbelly of the veteran experience of going, here's, here's, here's our Achilles heel. And we're kind yeah. of showing you what it is. And you hope that civilians have the maturity to process it correctly. Yes. Or I do. And- you know. Yes, and and there's even the I'll, I will add two two components to this if if you don't mind me jumping in. Please, not that, at all. Uh, that, that one that you know a, a, for me it was a sort of uh, you know backwards planning made perfect sense to me in the military. Perfect sense as a child of an alcoholic, right? As a as growing up basically feral. Like how am I going to get from there to here? I don't think linearly. I think there to where I'm at. And I went, ah, the military gets me. Um, but, but that was true as well in terms of exposing what you so perfectly described, you know, the, the, the tender underbelly of, of war. It's not that I'm anti-war and we can't, I, I mean, I, I suppose I am, but what I'm anti is that people who are deciding to send us to war have zero sacrifice in that, in that decision. When we went both into Afghanistan and Iraq, what was it? One senator, maybe two, were either veteran and or had kids. And I think it was zero House members. That, that's insanity that we would, that, they, that the folks making decisions aren't having. And that, by the way, I don't mean to put it all in Congress. That go, that's true nationwide as well. Right? Who stood up against that saying, no, that's my kid going? It tends to be rah-rah, let's go instead of, hold on, let's be very thoughtful about this. Let's be, be clear if we have to, absolutely, if there's a necessity, but let's make sure we spend as much money on their return as we do on sending them out and facilitating them out there because the disproportion in budget has been talked about so much that it's, yeah. it's again, insanity. And the last bit I wanted to say, if, if I may. No, no, yeah. Is that... The, is the other thing that, that that's not covered and that we're really big proponents of and, and could, to be honest, really had to be sort of subversive uh, up until about the last three years, which is the Department of Defense and a Harvard study both have shown that military veterans have much higher ACE scores, adverse childhood experiences. That means that those who are joining the military and excelling are generally speaking fleeing traumatic childhoods. That's never healed. Then we're wired for war. So I'm not putting all of the all of it on the military or war or war training. I'm saying this actually begins before that. And that's another thing that we know that we quietly, you know, give the the signal to but pretend not to to acknowledge. So it's not just the military and this helps explain why the the suicides aren't highest among combat veterans, but instead it's across the entirety of military service. This helps explain why you don't have to not only not be in combat, but you don't have to be special forces, ranger, airborne air assault to have PTSD. You can be a refrigeration repair specialist on a Tomahawk missile 
uh, cruiser. I, I right. don't know Navy speak. Sorry to all my Navy brothers and sisters out there. But you know what I mean? The the idea is that that where is this coming from? Well, yeah. it's a it's an entire symphony of problem of of obstacles or challenges, shall we say, coming together in each individual veteran. So uh, first, uh, I, I hope you're taking all this as a compliment. I realize that I'm 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 giving devil's advocate or or contradictory positions, but it's because I love it. You, you just provoke so much thought that that I think it's and and there's few people I think that have given it as much thought. So it's it's a worthy conversation to have. Um, for me personally, um, so I want to throw this out anecdotally and, and just bounce this off you. For me personally, um, coming there's nothing worse in a deployment cycle than coming back and demobilizing uh, and waiting for uh, you know the paperwork to get processed and all that. Mm-hmm. Now, I was a guard guy. Um, I was in a special operations unit, so we did deploy every year. Wow. So it was a frequent op tempo, but it but I did actually have to demobilize every time. Active duty, I get it. You come back. You walk right off the plane and you're on leave for a little bit. So immediately you get to decompress for me because I didn't, because I'd have to demobilize every time and go through the paperwork, get another DD-214 every single time. They'd have to keep me on base for a week or two. And I would inevitably be ready to lose my shit uh, during that time. So here, so this is my personal bias. Um, What scares the crap out of me about decruiting about uh, unprogramming from war is who's doing it because yeah. I'll be goddamned if the bureaucrats sitting over there at a demob station are going to keep me around. And there were horror stories of guys that you'd come back with and they said the wrong thing on their paperwork. Mm-hmm. And now they're stuck yeah. there for another year, year and a half. Yeah. And you're going, yeah. Oh my God, dude, like get the hell out of there. Um, yeah. Talk to me just about that piece. How did, how does that strike you? Uh, well, it strikes me as accurate and 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 worthy of scrutiny as you as uh, that you've given it because it's because right now the treatment is is I would describe it as as punitive. If you have problems, you will be punished, right? If you have problems, it'll go on your record. It'll affect affect your discharge. It'll affect this, that, and the other. Again, the, you know, with, with reason, but but uh, yeah, I, what astounds me is that. There's a weeding out process into the military, just even into basic training, right? They, they get rid of, and this is what, again, where that, that childhood, adverse childhood experience comes in. If, you know, I don't know about you, but my basic training wasn't filled with people turning down Harvard scholarships, modeling jobs for Vogue, you know, and, and you know what I mean? We weren't exactly, it was 86, but still, or 85, but still, it was, we were not, it, we, we weren't, uh, there was a reason we were all able to make it that f- just into basic training from the military mm-hmm. because it's on purpose. And then we spend eight weeks just learning the basics of military service. So why couldn't we have eight weeks just to get the basics of decruiting, of, of getting back out again? And, and not punitive, but the way basic training is done, which is, everyone does it. I don't, I've, I've never had any heard any story of someone who doesn't have trauma doing any sort of trauma treatment and having it affect them negatively ever ever i would say three quarters of the people that enter the room with us tend to tell me uh, off the bat i don't have any problems my family was perfect my childhood was great i love my parents like yes sure great so does everyone 
but let's talk some more. And and not we don't prod. This is just the process. This is the creative process in a in a container or room for truth. Eventually, it's well, yeah, sure. My dad was this or that and the other, or my mom was that. No right. blame. We're just right. trying to figure out function of the brain and body. What is your what is your body's brain and function? And that was developed primarily as a child and then rewired uh, some in the military. That's all we're trying to do is understand what is your physiology in certain, from certain stimuli and how do we undo it? So couldn't the military do that as well? And I agree with you. I think there is, it would be problematic to have the military do that. But what astounds me is that not even the VA is automatic. We don't leave the military yes. and go right into the VA. Yep. It's in, it's, it's, it, 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 we're being asked things that for the most part, are exactly per, falling right into the symptoms of, of yep. PTSD, yep. right? Isolation. Yep. Isolation doesn't go well with going to the VA. Isolation doesn't deal well with filling out mountains of paperwork and tracking down your, your goddamn files from this base or that yep. post or what, you know, that our person or whatever. You know, it, it, all the symptoms of PTSD fight directly against that. And PTSD doesn't have to be from the military. It can, as I said, be right. from childhood. Right. So, right. so yeah, that's all I'm getting at is why can't this stuff be as, as, as deliberate and as clear and as purposeful as our military training in? That's all I'm getting I, at. I, no, and I think I, I really do think that you're not just onto something. I think you've illuminated something that it should be considered um, at every at every level of military involvement, um, at every chance where there's any sort of significant, I think the resources to deal with significant emotional events should absolutely be there. Um, I guess for me, and you can probably appreciate this, it just comes down to the devil's in the details and who's actually mm -hmm. doing it. If Stefan yeah. Wolfert could be scaled, you know, if, if, if somebody could go into a room with you, yeah. I think anybody would be down for that. I think you and I both know if it's a top-down approach and suddenly DOD's got its big, you know, hammy hand, you know, steering yeah. you here and there, there is inherently going to be, if not even a punitive mechanism, it's going to feel like that. And it's going to feel like, yeah. well, it's not punitive, but you can't leave base. You can't go anywhere. You're locked down. And it's like, well, son of a bitch, then I don't want any part of this. But if there was that mechanism to open up 501c3s and like allow you to go and here's, yeah. you know, we'll put our money into giving you a retreat. It's funded yeah. and you go out right. there for two weeks and, you know, something like that. I could absolutely see the value of that. I absolutely, I, I agree. And, and this is what, this is why it, uh, part of the reason of why I think it hasn't happened yet is because exactly what you're describing is who gets to decide yeah. what is it can be, but what are the components? But, but even before that, we argue about whether or not PTSD exists we argue about, you know, who gets it. We argue about where, where, what are its mechanisms. We argue, you know what I mean? We get so caught up in the argument that, that whether or not it's even needed, we never even get to the, all right, well, how would we go about it? But let me offer this. We've, we've been lucky enough to go to six, seven other countries now and talk to some very high ups in the military. One, uh, one example is in uh, the Netherlands. Now, they recognize openly that this isn't enough, but this is the beginning of what they began was mm. their deployments to Afghanistan, their units left Afghanistan as units. They began the rotation. We learned a lot from Desert Shield and Desert Storm, right? The, the idea that 
that that cohort units are, mm-hmm. are better rather than pulling like in Vietnam where you pull individuals out and replace them. So they, we all learned that lesson, I think, for the uh, for most nations. Um, so they pull their units out uh, as a cohort. They take them to the Isle of Cyprus, and they give them. Uh, I think it's a week or two weeks of, uh, and not uh, unscrutinized. Right? It's not you don't. They don't track like, did you go to yoga? Did you go to therapy? Did you go to acupuncture? It's a resort. They and the, the way they described it to Don and I was, it's a resort-like setting where you can get anything you need. You can. There's all these different from faith to woo-woo medicine to literal medicine to pharmacology to whatever you need to. And by pharmacology, I include booze. <laughs> you know, they have the bar and they give them um, this sort of open resort setting as a unit to decompress. I wouldn't call it decruiting, but it is the beginning and it is a decompression. Um, before- hey, sorry. I, I lost yeah. you there for a second. No, it's all right. Um, let me, uh, sorry, let me, let me have you Hotel say Hotel Wi-Fi. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, and I'm in one too. So <laughs> between right. the two of us, we've got <laughs> dueling crappy Wi-Fi here. Right. Come on, Hilton Honors, you know, give me some, yeah. give me some juice here, man. I thought I had some swatter, some wasta with you. Um, just take it again from the, uh, the, Island when you're talking about the booze and the yoga and, and all yeah. that. Yeah. They, 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 what the, what they're doing is giving them a place uh, to acknowledge that there's something needs, that they need time to what I would say decompress, not necessarily decrute, but it is a beginning of decrute because as a community, they're on this Island where things aren't scrutinized. They're not tracked. They're not following what they're doing. They're offering them all these different, uh, everything from, I was saying, woo-woo medicine to pharmacology and everything in between. And you can take it without it being anything to do with your discharge or, or your record or whether you're strong or weak or any measurements. It's just yeah. get to the island, relax, <clears throat> decompress before we take you back to your community. The Romans did this. They used to put us out on farms right to to be in the earth and to connect and to process and 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 to let it go and then if we could we were welcomed back into rome but but if we couldn't we stayed on the the farm but they also took care of them out on the farm at least according to the records that exist i'm not saying well, it was great, I, I i know in 2006 i feel like 2005 2006 i remember hearing that one of the major contractor companies one of the major pmcs and i can't remember if it was Blackwater or Triple Canopy or somebody actually had gotten a resort space in the Caribbean and everybody that cycled through, you know, that's where they went for like two weeks or a month after and it had exactly that setup. I, I, I think that's a brilliant idea. I think between you and me, we've just solved an awful lot. For right. anybody, anybody well, who's got beginning. some pull, yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. It is a beginning. Because the other yeah. thing, because like you said, not only is it a, not a, not only is it punitive because it, it affects our discharge and everything else in our record, but socially, you know, the weak we we consider that a weakness very often or a moral failing when it's not. It's a function of the brain, and then on top of that, there's just the cold hard reality of money. And like I said, the amount of money we put towards making war versus recovering from war is it's, the disproportionate doesn't even cover it. Yeah. And so now we get into arguing about who gets what and what works well and what doesn't. And, you know, it, 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 we just well, get lost in these arguments. But, but even to that point, I think the m- amount of money we sink into the VA system to treat things that maybe if they've been caught earlier could have been handled better and cheaper. You know, that, yeah. that it's just a matter of, of looking at that. I, I think, it, listen, this is all great. And I have done a crappy job 
of setting you up for success here because I'm, I will explain <laughs> a lot of this in the intro. So if people are completely lost, they'll have some context. But let me back up and take the 30,000 foot view. Let's start with uh, what came first, the decruiting idea or cry havoc as a means to then suddenly realize that decruiting was a necessary and crucial part of the process. Yeah, uh, they were. It's a great question. I get asked it a fair amount, and, and it's they're, they're they're interwoven. They can't. I can't really separate one from the mm. other. Sometimes one would take the lead, and then the other. But but decruit began very much as me search, right? Which is and, and cry havoc was a literal example of trying to answer the question of what the hell is wrong with me. That was the oh. question I began with. Now this started as my graduate thesis. Um, we had to do a performance component at, at my graduate school, a Trinity rep in Rhode Island. And um, besides writing, which I was horrible at, still am, is you know sitting down to write, I can't, I'm too ADHD. But I could create a performance piece. And the performance piece was me asking that exact question. And what I had done at that time was taken Richard III, cut it down to the I cut Richard III down to the maximum allowed amount of time, which is 45 minutes. And in my hubris, I cut out Richard III's monologues and inserted my own story. <laughs> so, Richard the Third is by far the most insignificant character of Richard the Third. Yes, it's right. Good you know, yeah, exactly. He doesn't really apply. But, yeah, dude, yeah. but you know, where he was talking about what I did is just, I, I essentially put it in prose and very personal what he was going through because he's who I identified with. That that mm. was. He was a big reason why I left the army, as I talked about in Cry Havoc. But, but and the way I began that my graduate piece was started with my paralysis in high school, and and then read the other actor reading out of my actual medical records of what wow. they were saying about me, and then I went into now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this doctor <laughs> instead of the son of York. Um, but then, you know, later, uh, what, almost 10 years later, uh, go figure, right? The Odyssey <laughs> talks about the 10-year journey home. Yeah. So many of the Vietnam veterans talk about writing their book at the 10-year mark as they were breaking down. I was breaking down. Um, for me, it was also 9-11 happened around my 10-year mark. So, And I was looking at maybe I should go back in to help out and all this. So all the shame's coming up. So once again, where did I return yeah. to? Yeah. The theater, my theater community. Shakespeare, the verse, the power of the verse, giving me language for that which I, I lacked, and the meter, the, the rhythm of being able to process and integrate my trauma. And I, found, I realized, okay, I think I'm better served staying out. You know, I'm 40 at this point, or, uh, no, I was 30 something, but my back was, you know, I had infantrymen's back and knees, and I, they weren't going to take yeah, me back yeah, anyways. Yeah. So, how could I be more of service? And it really ramped up what I was doing. I was also at that time working, lucky enough to work with Twyla Tharp. Yes, let me pick up that name. <laughs> but I was just pure dumb luck, got to work with Twyla Tharp on a play that went to Broadway called Moving Out, which was about Vietnam veterans and the process. And she was so amazing that she let me be a part of the process from the get-go to make sure that her dancers were believable when they went into basic training mode. They were believable when they were on patrol. She wasn't pulling one of these, well, you get three hours, make my actors believable right, veterans. Right. She, I, got, I worked with them for over a year. She was committed to it. And wow. she's the one that gave me the, 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 I hope I'm not cutting out too badly from the Wi-Fi here. No, no, you're good. She, you're good on my Okay. End. She gave me that, that literal, that, that actual phrase, wired for war, because I'm struggling to get her dancers to not be in first position turned out and instead at position of attention. Huh. And she said, you have to understand they've been dancing since they were 
or five and six years old, they're wired for dance. You're wired for war. And I went, oh, you know, it's, oh, of course yeah, it's Twyla yeah, Tharp. Yeah, yeah, She's yeah. brilliant. But, but, but then it wow. you know, at that, this is all, this is all happening at the same time. So then it, it began to come back and it wasn't until, um, a few years after that, then that um, I'm with my now wife Dawn to where my back uh, had laid me back up, and I realized how much I'd gotten into caring for others instead of caring for myself and my own shit. I was laid up with my back once again, and realized, you know what? I and I was drinking about three quarter, half to three quarters of a bottle of tequila every night. Every night, without fail, and and just draw, you know white knuckling until I could drink again each day. So I was in severe the throes of severe alcoholism, and thought I gotta sort my shit out. I'm gonna lose my wife. I'm gonna lose everything, and I don't like this. I just don't like this feeling anymore. Yeah. I gotta do something. So I went back to the play. So I'd gotten lost. I would say argue lost and decrute a bit, helping others, not taking care of myself. When in fact the origins of decrute are I'm patient zero. Don's yeah. patient zero. Any yeah. vet that came with us <laughs> gave us new ideas and it infused us with new ideas or knowledge were patient, their own patient zeros. So it's a bunch of patient zeros creating the program, but I got lost in that. So I went back to the show, said, I got to finish the, you know, wrote on my chalk, on my whiteboard, finish Cry Havoc and put it up off Broadway in three years. It took four, but that focus gave me a reason like the military did, which was to have practice self-care. It yeah. motivated me to get up and do yoga every morning, to do yoga before bed, to get start folk dealing with my addiction. Not in a not in a way of, oh, you're diseased and you're you're broken and you can't drink, but instead, in, in no offense to AA, because it helped me get started, but instead to recognize that a, my addiction, more like Gabor Mate's work, my addiction is because it's too painful to be alive. And that's worthy of compassion. And I realized, oh, I didn't have any. I have self-loathing for my, my childhood uh, activation warning, for my childhood sexual trauma. I was abused sexually as a child and physically and verbally, so much so that I had a deep self-loathing. Now, again, the military was perfect because what did they call us the first two weeks of basic training? Pieces of shit. And I thought, oh, hey, I'm home. They get me. They know who I am. They know what I am. But then they broke that down and made me something else entirely. They made me a soldier. But now that service is over and I'm back to the self-loathing, wondering, well, who am I? What am I? And the theater, the classical actor tra training, gave me permission to be present in my body, even with the pain, to be present and to, for the first time, I would argue in my life, have self-compassion for this body that I put through so much, to have compassion for this human being that had been through so much, to offer as much care towards me as I am for so many others. And you can see it's, it's, it's getting me now even, because it's really hard. Yeah. The self-care opens me up and it's like, ah, it's yeah. so foreign, you know? But that's where the show came back towards me practicing self-care and decrut is caring for others, if that makes sense. So it's really it hard makes complete sense. Uh, how long, how much of the original show that you had done as your master's thesis made it into the final? Uh, what I, what made it into um, a, a few, uh, the two Richard, the third monologues would be the, okay. I would, uh, argue. 
more than that, but in terms of more more general shape right. of it made, but the actual literal material was it was a complete inversion because Rich uh, Cry Havoc is my story with Shakespeare, but I borrow from all the I just yes. grab not just I grabbed pieces that from the very beginning I heard that either affected me deeply and related to personally. Or I heard differently than my civilian counterparts. Mm. So Lady Percy, for example, and Henry V, once more into the breach. Those are two examples of when I saw most actors perform it, it was, and, and people direct it, it was, and I'm just sharing what my experience was, but they made poor Lady Percy this screechy mess that's hollering at her husband of like, why the fuck don't you just get over it? When in fact, what I heard, I mean, again, full disclosure, when I added that to Cry Havoc, I I would bet it took me a year and a half to be able to get through it without being a complete sobbing mess. Because what Lady Percy gave me was the point of view of all the spouses and all the partners of we veterans, of what they're going through. And again, that compassion that I had for others was far greater. So when I would read this and I would think of my wife and everything she goes through hour after hour and night after night with me, the bruises she received from me thumping her in the bed or punching the wall yeah. or, or yeah. A flash, my flashes of rage and anger or self-hatred and self-harm, that laid it out. So it was really hard for me to get through. And what I found was I had to drop in and connect with it personally and say it as her to me, the way she did. And that gave me a, a different yeah. version of Lady Percy. Then the same true was true with Richard III of Once More Into the Breach. You know, it's always done as, <clears throat> you know, and also the Band of Brothers, which I still is, was deliberately cut out of Cry Havoc because it's always done as It's Robert. always done, yeah, yeah. Right? And, yeah. and it's not, it, it was, when I've been in moments that were more akin to that, they, it was much more somber, yeah, we had that camaraderie, that sense of, you know, well, you know, this is a good, if I'm going to die, as he says, we're enough to do so. And, and, and if this is the company, I'm okay with that. Because the reality is, I don't know about you, but there were a lot of people that I didn't even like in my unit. We didn't, right. when we were off duty, we didn't get get along. But in that moment, we were brothers. And mine was all a male unit at the time. So we were brothers. And I say it in the show, far more than my, my biological brothers. These people were closer to me when we were in the field. And that, but it was much more somber. It wasn't this, you know, yeah. orchestra in the back, filling it and, and yelling it. And yes, let's go die. It was more of, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. You know, it was much more of that. I agree, and I, I I like Kenneth Branagh a lot, but I, I've always thought he got that wrong in the movie version of Henry V. That it was it was too rah rah. I was like, ah, no, no, you're not feeling yeah. the fear, man. You're not feeling impending death. You know, you gotta you gotta feel that, and that's where that strength of that speech I think comes from. I I agree with you, and see, we get that we get, and that's what happens in the room is then when we grab when we lift rather than try to do whole plays when we lift these veterans' speeches and veterans in the room are doing it new truths come out, new things that we're not able to share, like you said, in the civilian world or outside that room. And some of those truths are that that I've yet to have someone in the room that was a part of the machine of killing this trigger puller or in command and support or service and support of that, that don't have some level of guilt, human guilt. Yeah. We're a community 
animal. Our species is about community. And to take one of those out to remove their life or be a part of that is always going to have an impact. And I would think we would want that. But where does that go? And Shakespeare gives us those opportunities to speak those truths. You know, for Macbeth to say, oh, sorry, I should have warned, <laughs> but, but I'm saying it. Duck for cover but, if, you, if you're, yeah, right, you can't right. deal with it, yeah. But how brilliant is this writer? How brilliant is yeah. he of our experience to have, have Macbeth hear women crying and yeah. to be so dissociated that he has to turn to someone else and say, what is that noise? The actual word, is, the question is, what is that noise? And the doctor says, it is the cry of women, my good Lord. As in, how can you not yeah. know that? And he explains to us why. He says, I've almost forgot the taste of fears. The time hath been, my senses would have cooled to hear a night shriek, and my fell of hair would at a dismal treatise rouse and stir as life were in it. I have supped full of horrors. Direness to my slaughterous thoughts cannot once startle me. He thinks he's numb. He recognizes he's numb. But what happens? The doctor comes in and says, the person you've been doing all of this for, your wife, is dead. (sighs) He thought he was numb and now comes rushing in all of the feelings she should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word tomorrow and tomorrow, and tomorrow. And he goes on to share how much he's now feeling. So Shakespeare's giving us, when we're in the room with veterans, our experience and giving language to it in ways that we're not able to articulate out the room. And the last bit I'll say about this is something else that I took for granted in these rooms, in my hubris, I assumed we all had camaraderie, right? Because Shakespeare, what's always Mm. wheeled out about us is that camaraderie uh, experience to make up a word, but it's not true. It's just simply not true. You know, the the Air Force veteran who's a combat photographer being assigned to an Army infantry unit isn't being welcomed in by that unit. Right. The female combat medic from Mogadishu isn't being welcomed by the Rangers from Mogadishu. You know, it's just it's the cold hard reality of that that we hear in the room that they're not able to share of share of. It's not always camaraderie based. Yeah. You know, that was a shock to me, frankly. Well, it's still that my brother and I against my cousin, my cousin and I against the world. It's like, we'll, we'll bond when a civilian walks in, you know, right. but then amongst ourselves, it, it'll, it'll still be like, oh, you know, yeah, Truth. Navy, why don't you join the military? You know, yeah. I mean, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask about one. The first thing I think in Cry Havoc that made me stop, pause, rewind, go back. Wait, did he just really say that? Um. You were AWOL on the train. Mm. I assume yeah. you actually were legally AWOL, that that wasn't yeah. just, yeah. I was like, he knows too much to just casually say that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at the, so later on, and I, uh, you know, we'll edit this if I'm giving out spoilers, mm-hmm. but when you go back and end up resigning your commission, uh, yeah. spoiler alert, I mean, Stefan's not in the military now, so but was that almost a mutual parting at that point where they're like, dude, you're a fuck up. Get out of here. We don't want to. That's, this is a brilliant question. And, and it, uh, I, I think um, because and I rarely get asked it. I, I get asked the, the, the small nuance part about AWOL. But you very astutely asked the, the greater the consequences and, and, and right. follow up of that. Um, I was. So this is the power of theater and the political license of theater. I was absolutely AWOL and it, uh, and it was technical. However, my, uh, I had a, a top sergeant, uh, uh, our first sergeant, 
was a Vietnam veteran and my platoon sergeant. I was in charge of a detachment platoon at that time. They were both Vietnam veterans. They knew exactly what was going on with me Hmm. and they covered for me. And my platoon sergeant had gotten, disturbingly so, (laughs) I didn't know this before this happened, had perfected my signature to where he was signing off. Yeah, I didn't know this until after. And I'm like, how much of this were you doing before? And he's like, best you don't know, sir. It's best you just just go on. But then as I was, so I was uh, AWOL and then came back and said, yeah, I I think I'm broken and I think I'm going to leave. And so I was on track for my dream on track for for that. Um, I had been airborne, air assault, ranger school, and now I'm looking at Q course in the very next, very oh, near really? future. Yeah, wow. um, was looking to apply, and um, but these thing, uh, things were breaking, things were fracturing, things had happened before this as well. Um, uh, but w- what the military did when I went to get out, I stayed in Montana. They sent three people to convince me to come back. My uh, a buddy of mine that I was with, <laughs> my former commander and a special forces sergeant that was a mentor of mine. He, and he was a Vietnam veteran as well. Wait, and when you tour. say they sent, the military. Opted for yeah. sergeant or, or was it your command sent it? This is a really good question. I think it was at least at battalion level, if not brigade or higher. They did invested a lot of money in me. And, and, and I don't, you know, I can say this now because I'm, I'm older. I don't mean like I was fucking great at it, no, but no, no, I was no. good. I was good. Yeah. I was good at what I did. And it was a time when we knew the, you know, things were, going to go the way they did, which is we're about to be very, very active and come out of our, our sort of dormant time. They wanted mm. me to be in. I'd been enlisted. So I was our sort of a rarity among officers, not a rarity, but there weren't many. It was, you know, a lot of them had off. There was that rift and they were, they wanted an infantry officer in particular, a special operations officer who had that experience of, of both and could lead in, in a, more nuanced way, I'll, I'll say, I, I think. But yeah, so the military had sent these people back to convince me to come back. So, so even though they were covering for you, the command still found out. They still knew you were in the way. Well, by this point, they had put me on, uh, what I didn't know is that the, they put me on leave. So I was AWOL, oh, I see. checked in, told them, I'm done, I'm, I'm freaking out, I'm leaving. They knew it was going on, put me on, signed my paperwork, <laughs> and put me on leave. They took excellent care of me. Gotcha. And I'm glad they did it. Gotcha. I, I Obviously, I'm not giving any names, so no one gets in trouble. But <laughs> right, I mean, right, think right. after all these years. But um, I'll never forget my commander. Uh, he knocked on the door. And uh, I opened it, and it's him, and it was a shock. Uh, he was holding a six-pack of Dos Equis and oh, the movie Zulu. Wow. Uh, Zulu or Zulu Dawn? Yep. Rourke's Drift, the defense of Rourke's Drift. And he said, I'm here to reinstate your manhood. <laughs> I was like, brilliant. It's, yeah, right. Oh, my I was like, God. Too late, sir. I, uh, my, it's gone. I'm, I'm, I'm fractured. I'm, it's, and yeah. they all agreed. I want to say, but, but just real quick to follow yeah. up, yeah. especially the special forces sergeant. Um, he, he, when he had a, a sit down with me, he actually said, uh, um, yeah, based on what you're telling me, you're actually right. At this point, you would be a danger. Some, you're this, this, yeah. something new is happening. And it turns out the artists had just taken over. It was time for the artists to come out. So uh, the obvious question to me was, uh, and again, I'm doing my thing where I work in inverse order instead of any kind of logical progression <laughs> in, in this. But you I know, when you, you when you open the the cry havoc and talking about your brother catching you doing ballet, yeah. um, 
What was your brother's reaction and what was your internalization of now being a ranger tabbed infantry officer? Were you like, fuck yeah, I'm butch now. Like, was there a sense of, of identity and satisfaction? Uh, Like, how was that processing for you? And how was that? And how was the people that had antagonized you? How were they treating you? Was it any different? Uh, you mean when I was in the military and this was, well, yeah, was now that you were ranger yeah. tapped, were they like, Oh shit, Jesus, I, yeah, I, I pushed him, but goddamn, he's, he's going to be more butch than me. I mean, that, that's. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is, it's a, it's a, it's yeah. Again, this comes back to Shakespeare, believe it or not. Yes, I did. I, at this point I was doing martial arts every day. I was, I hadn't, wasn't tabbed. Uh, uh, I, I was in ranger school, got in the gulag, went another and I was golden and got a concussion. And then got out before I had orders to go back again to Ranger School okay. and got out. Okay. So I just want to be gotcha. clear and respectful for all yeah, the tabs. Yeah, no, I appreciate uh, that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but airborne air assault and and had uh, yeah, um, and light fighter and what have you. Okay. Anyways, yes, I went back. Um, I actually. Um, uh, my, bro- my brother and I got in a fight at one point. With, we put on gloves. We were boxing, and for the first time ever in my life, I had knocked him down. Wow. I'd square off one, two. It was a big moment for me. But here, here's the thing. So now I have this. And he was, he was treating me differently. Uh, uh, no one else was. Everyone else, even though, you know, my mother, everyone was, I was still basically a fuck up in everyone else's mind. Um, it, this is just the way it goes, right? That people need us to stay where they, they need us to stay where they need us. They're not, yeah. very often people aren't willing to yield to where we're changing, it's about us. And the reality is that that I went back thinking all of this artifice would make them change. Hmm. When in re- reality, the change needed, and I'm embracing the, the cheesiness of how, how this might sound, hmm. what had to change is my relationship to myself. I had to, it, from, not had to, what I was really searching for and was unaware was Hamlet's speech, to be or not to be. To be who I really feel I am or to be what everyone else thinks I am. And yes, there's the suicidal element of that as well. But, 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 but Richard's nightmare, again, I'm a villain, yet I lie. I am not. Fool of thyself, speak well. Fool, do not flatter. So I still was carrying everyone else's opinion of me inside. In fact, my wife calls it the shitty committee. Right, all the voices that we heard along the way that we continue to carry, even though those people are outside of our lives. So I went back thinking, oh, I'm now a, a, a detect, you know, I'm a first lieutenant promotable, about become to become a captain and company company commander. Bow down to me, and they're like, nah, you're still the youngest in the family. You're still a baby. You're still the, you know, my mother would treat me like a child and say, mom, I'm in charge of like 147 men and millions of dollars worth of equipment, and they turn to me for for what to do next and you're treating me like this like, I don't care you're still my baby right there's that whole thing which can sound flattering and fun and for the movies but when we when you're in crisis of identities as I was it's crushing yeah but it, but I had to but it was more about me being who I was so so the show the play cry havoc was a way for me to speak what I'd always been holding inside to speak the truth externally to share that story of my brother bob and that was hard yeah that was really hard to speak openly and honestly about my family knowing they might see this and i had and, and you mel- thank them at the end 
I, I noticed at the end of the, the end credits, at least on the YouTube video, they are prominently well thanked. And I was like, yeah, geez. All right. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, yeah. That had a happy ending. And I hope, yeah. I mean, did, it, did, what was their reaction to seeing it? Well, I don't know that anyone has seen it. I really don't. We've, we don't talk. We don't. So my father's passed. We never rec- really reconciled. He was just a different guy in the latter half. He was this gentle, sweet, loving, sober man, you know. Um, but, but that was, I had a wonderful relationship, I think, with, with, with that guy. But that's not the guy who raised me. Um, we never really reconciled that. Uh, my mother's still alive and well. And, and you know, she, we, my sister brought her, we were in Ireland. My wife and I were in Ireland and my sister brought her over and we spent time together and it was really lovely. So when we, when we create containers within which to behave <laughs> lovingly, we can do so. Um, and that's a credit to them as much, you know, as, as the work that I'm doing on myself. So that's why I thank them. And we don't really talk. We don't, we're not really open and honest about things, but that's, the, these are the, like I said, this is how we survive our, our relationship, I think. And So you don't and, talk with your brother? Um, I, I do. I actually, the crazy thing about that is Bob ended up uh, working for the government, government contracting. And I think I can, can't really say anything more than that. I don't really know much more than that. And I think that helped him as well. Um, get to have to have sort of the life he always wanted mm. and then to for us to come together in the lives that we always wanted and go, okay, we completely degree, disagree ideologically on virtually everything, but but we're still connected. We still survived our childhood together. He took beatings for me I, uh, when we were young and I, I like I, I'm I, the truth is I worshiped him as a child. And here's the final bit of this uh, I would say is that of all the people in, in that I, in the family that I lifted out higher than the others, I put Bob out there, right. As beating me up, yeah. having an influence. And yet he's the only one to this day that called me and said, Hey, I'm sorry for what I did to you as a kid. His exact words are not, uh, I'll never forget. I was in an airport and I was, uh, heaving, sobbing, because he said, you were a good kid and you didn't deserve that. And I was wow. weeping, weeping. And then he was crying and we were talking and I, I, I shared with him, you know, I, I saw what you went through and I'm sorry, you didn't deserve that either. And so we, of all the people, <laughs> wow. he and I have actually really reconciled and, 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 and that's because of the play. I don't know if he yeah. saw the play. Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, you don't know if he ever saw I'm it. assuming he must have. Um, I'm assuming he must have, but we never talked about it. Yeah. I mean, he's, cause he's certainly the, uh, I mean, that moment with him is almost the inciting incident of the entire play, right? It, it really triggers so much. I, I can't let this go and obviously say as much or as little as you want about it, but it's interesting to me that in something that's as revealing and as personal as cry havoc, you yeah. don't mention the sexual trauma that you just mentioned before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why or what was the consideration with that? And uh, how has that played out for you? Um, damn, you're killing it with the questions today. I'm serious. These, well, you're too interesting. It's, it's easy. So it's insightful. No, no, you're, you're, give you, you're fucking brilliant. You're, you really are. Um, that I have the shakes talking about it. So the, the short version is when I, when I was writing cry havoc, I had not yet admitted the sexual trauma. I also underestimated 
its role in my adult life. I was raised mm-hmm. of, of the. I was raised in the time when we said that was so long ago. It, why? Why would it matter? It couldn't possibly matter. I grew up with those kinds of phrases, and. Um, and I don't know if that's from, and I mean this sincerely, I don't know if that's the Irish American legacy, you know, because there is some of that. I noticed that in my community, the Irish uh, American community, there's a lot of that just very, very similar to the military of just suck it up and drive yeah, on, suck it up sure. and drive on. And we just kind of clench it all down. Um, and so I don't know if it's that, but but I also will say that that, that what was happening was when I was sharing Cry Havoc and that wasn't in there. I had many, many, many adult survivors of childhood sexual trauma approach me after the show and swear that it was in there. And I I was astounded by this because I don't recall ever saying it out loud, but they felt it. They felt the presence of it being in there without me virtually actually saying it. So then when I'm, when I'm, when I'm, processing this myself and and working on it and getting sober and and facing head on the sexual trauma uh, as su- at such a young age um the play was virtually was basically was pretty well set and i ha- i was no longer the person that wrote that play yeah. however people needed that play yeah. And who were also not yet where I where I was. I don't want to say where yeah. I was because that sounds pretentious and, and arrogant. But what I mean is, um, for me, I had I've gotten to a place to where I'm no longer that that guy. Yeah. And there are so many people who still need to hear that guy's story to be able to get to where they're going to be next. The next stuff that we're working on does face head on the childhood sexual trauma. It does face head on. You know, Dawn has created her own. Uh, a version of Decruit that's that's her version of it. And we've had other veterans create their version of what they need it to be. We ha- we had a veteran who felt that Shakespeare wasn't, it helped her, but for her, she's very religious and I'm an atheist. So this is a wonderful place mm. to, uh, 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 yet again, proving the, the, the uh, how power of theater that we could meet there. But for her, the Psalms were as powerful as Shakespeare's monologues are to me. So sure. she asked, and we said, yes, of course. She took the Psalms and made Decrute, her own version of Decrute with the Psalms. But, um, but I, I, don't, I hope I didn't get, uh, wasn't no. avoiding it, but, but for Not me it all. was yeah. that it wasn't there. Like it wasn't, it was the, again, the unspoken truth. Cry, uh, uh, one more bit uh, that mm-hmm. I actually hope helps to answer. The Cry Havoc was created not through sitting down and writing, but instead having tw- about 25 Shakespeare monologues at performance level readiness. Again, the line, can you tell <laughs> vet, right? Got to speak it that way. <laughs> Knew roughly the story that I wanted to tell, which were my own stories. And because I'm not the type of writer that sits down and writes, instead I'm a, I'm a performer. So I, um, in my insanity and naivete, uh, arranged with Shakespeare Center in Los Angeles to have their space for two weeks to literally develop this in front of a live audience. So it was an invited audience for the most part, but, but people coming in that are familiar with playmaking or veterans or healing trauma, or merging theater and, 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 and mental health healing. So it was, it was also an invited, friendly audience. It wasn't, it wasn't critics and what have you. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have a script. So each night, we would finish the play. My wife, 
um, a friend, dear friend, Bruce Servi, another friend, uh, Randy Brumba, and, and the director, among some several others, would sit down with index cards that had the stories in the Shakespeare monologue and rearrange the order and go, you know what? I think this is more powerful to open with. You know what? What if we brought that out? And actually, that your that story is you apologizing for what you're doing. Let's get more truth in. And what would happen as a result is the Jonathan Shea's term, the communalization of trauma he uses in Achilles in Vietnam is the perfect description of what was happening was I'm communalizing my trauma. The audience is witnessing my testimony and what I'm testifying. I'm seeing that they can take it. What's happening is truth starts falling out <laughs> almost uh, accidentally. Certain things there were, there's sto that story that you talked about the pivotal story of Dawn. She didn't know I was going to share that. That mm. literally just came up as I was talking about the, that moment in the play. That moment just happened. I thought of wow. it. I said it in front of an audience. They reacted positively. We kept it. So this is how this play was constantly shaped and created. And 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 the other thing is the suicide as well. That where I talk about the spoiler alert, yeah. but where uh, my my being honest about my suicidal idealization or my, my, it was nightly. I would have spurts. My depression would get so bad that it was nightly. I had the shotgun in my mouth night after night after oh. night, and then having deep shame that I couldn't even pull the trigger, but I'm carrying this silently and privately. And what happened was there was another, uh, 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 again, trigger warning. There was another mass shooting. And this is when they were just really becoming sort of where, more common, shall we say? It was uh, uh, Sandy Hook, if I'm not mistaken. The oh, shooting. okay, sure. And that was it. Was in the day, and it unleashed in me that story of catering. And wow. I shared it with. I'm weeping in the fetal position as they're trying to go to places, and I'm saying this play is going to kill me. Don and the director and every, the team, the creative team, asked, "What's going on?" I told them. They said, "You have to share that tonight." To the audience, and I'm I'm having complete anxiety attacks, one after the other, going realizing I can't I can't I can't I can't, but I did. So that night I shared it, unrehearsed, raw in front of the audience. Yes, they gasped in horror. But what happened was it took me to in my attempt to explain to them where this goes. For me, it wasn't to harm other people, but myself to go home and put the gun in my mouth instead of. Yeah mass yeah. shooting, we, they could then have against their, uh, almost seemingly sub, un, against their own will, empathy for me yeah. because they'd now yeah. watched me for 15 minutes. And the, and the last bit I'll close with is for any um, people, anyone out there looking at writing their own, uh, uh, their own story, I want to be very clear that when I was, the first notes I got, the opening, uh, not opening, but the opening night of development, the first two notes I got were, this is not a play. It should be hmm. done as a radio play and someone else should do it, not me, a different actor. Huh. And very valid statements, but but just I'd share that. Uh, uh, and they meant it out of love, but but I just want people to know that if you're writing, this can be really raw. It's really... Because it's our own story, it's hard to separate and go, they're telling the playwright, not me personally. They're saying, hey, these are my notes, to then be able to take their notes and go, 
do I want to incorporate them or do I reject them? What, yeah. It helps me define who I am as an artist and what I, kind of art I want to make. So I just want to throw that in there too. You've done, I've got a ton of questions about what you just said. Let me, let me maybe start yeah. with um, the process of that development. Did you ever find yourself muttering to yourself in the mirror, uh, words, phrases, just developing it on your own away from the communal sharing or, and then go, oh yeah, now that I want to bring that to the stage or was everything being workshopped live because you needed that dynamic of, and that, and that uh, immediacy um, to figure out what was working and how you phrase this with that attention on you. Yeah. It, um, 50% of each and that okay. percentage would vary day to day. So like I said, the, the model, the monologue selection was around 25. I think I'm down. I think now the current version is something like uh, 12, give or take. The other thing is, keep in mind, because it was developed in front of a live audience and different kinds of audiences, it also does modify. It'll shape. Like if I'm with a fellow Shakespeare nerd group, I'll throw in, there's monologues that I trim for mm -hmm. non-Shakespeare audiences that I'll do the full version of, for example. Gotcha. Um, I, I kind of go by where the audience is at. Are they starting to, <laughs> you know, grayscale over their eyes and think of their laundry list or are they, are they still with me? That helps influence what I'm doing. But, but yes, it would be real moments of my life and grabbing them and putting them on stage. But then also recognizing that there's a difference and having to craft what we put on stage for a more for greater universality. And the 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 thing that that surprised me was I assumed that to make something more universal it had to be more generic, but the opposite was true. I had to be more specific. For example, Tina Packer saw that when she saw an early uh, uh, the founder of one of the founders of Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, sure. Massachusetts. Yeah. Tina Packer was kind enough to come in on a very early process. And the show was about 35, 40 minutes at that time. And none of that opening stuff at the beginning was really in there. Um, I think Bob might have been, but there wasn't, there wasn't really the whole, you know, my childhood, the, the beginning of 1967, La Crosse, Wisconsin. And Tina said, I, I care. It's a, it's, a, it's a story well told. I care about veterans in general, but I don't know why I should care. And I don't know where you are in this. You told me about Henry mm. Lincoln Johnson. You told me about right. veterans in general, but where are you? So then we put in, we crafted that beginning. And the more we brought me, the more, or rather, I brought me on stage in front of the audience. And in fact, taking care of myself, seeing when I would... Right, begin to lock up myself and take a breath, even though because I'm being re-triggered re by my experiences. When I brought that on stage, then it was more dialed in. Then the audience received me more completely. Then it was more universal and I got uh, clear, clearer responses from audience members. So for example, when I poured the booze from my dad, I had a woman, I love this, when she said, she's front row and said, for my mom, it was gin. <gasps> And realized she had spoken out loud. I went, no, no, go on. Yeah, who else? Who else? And so now we're having a real experience. It's less about a play. And it's yeah. a real human being in front sharing truths in the container of theater. That's fascinating that you were getting into that because the second half of the play does get um, historical, I guess, is the, yeah. is the best way to put it, right? And, you're, and, you're, yeah. um, and it gets a little philosophical. And, and, mm -hmm. and it's interesting that that was the part that, I guess it makes sense. That was the part you'd be more comfortable 
in talking about early on and that you yeah, have to others. kind of reverse engineer yourself into <laughs> yeah. it, right? Yeah. 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 Um, let's talk just as an actor, um, your ability to be in the moment, your ability to credibly capture the emotions every time you've done this show 500 times. How often do you have moments of, ah, oh, son of a bitch, once more into the breach, dear friends, uh, literally, like, yeah. here I go again, I got to go do yeah. this again. Um, are you, do you still find that it G's you up or do you find that it's yeah. exhausting? Where are you at with it as an actor? Yeah. Um, uh, where I'm at with an actor is it's, it's, uh, and I, I'm, uh, is that it's the perfect, oh, perfect is the wrong word. It's a wonderful anchor within which I can continue to check where I'm at as an actor and as a human being. Huh. Um, and that is because doing it 500 times gives me the gift as an actor to be able to know, trust and remind my body that you don't have to worry one lick about what's next because you know what's next. Your body will, my mouth sometimes begins moving before my brain's even there. I also have the nights where they're, where they're fighting each other and have to practice what I preach on stage in front of people to ground, breathe, and take up the time and space. That's something that we say over and over again in Decrude. Take up the time and space to speak or to be or to feel, or whatever it is, just to be. So when I do it myself, I remind myself, ah, yeah, I'm not immune to this. I'm not, I'm not, I can't just talk about it. I have to practice it. And it also allows me, by not worrying about what's next, by not thinking, it allows me to allocate all of my resources to be fully present in that moment, whether I'm talking about, you know, my friend uh, being killed, or me being suicidal, or anything that's, that's, that's hijacking, shall we say, that might hijack my physical body, I can actually allow myself to be fully hijacked in that moment because I've built into the show ways to come back to go to the next thing. Mm. I've built in whether it's the architecture of my body, whether it's my breath, whether it's what's written next, whether it's the geographical map on stage that I've created because I always go down right for example for Lady Percy and what that does is creates a little mini ritual to remind myself hey stay on your voice here stay in don't get caught up so caught up in the emotion that you lose this make this about storytelling you know what I mean all the notes that I know can be simultaneous as I'm speaking my way to that corner so that (gasps) when I ground and breathe and speak that it's there the other thing that that happens with that in counterbalance is I'm a shitty mess all day of the play, <laughs> right? I am an absolute, my body begins rejecting. My body knows yeah. what's coming. Yeah. I shut down. I become reptile-like. I, my depression kicks in. I'm uh, just really not able to be around it. And the perfect example of that, I think our most recent example is here at Norwich. I hadn't done the play in two years. Now, Right before we went into into uh, lockdowns, I could do the play at willy nilly. Like we were in, a, we were uh, working at a, at a prison, and we had three hours, and we were talking to the vets, and they said, "Hey, don't you have a play? Could you do it for us?" I went, "Oh yeah, sure." Hopped up and just did it. Wow! In the without wow. like without doing all of the oh, let me warm up and let me right. get, which is all valid, but but what I realized in that time was that as I'm rehearsing in this very hotel room, 
I was in the middle of, I started the line through, I've done on book just to make sure that, you know, because the brain mm. reprise, it's been two years. Yeah, so sure. what, what did my brain remember? And what is it forgetting? What is my body remembering? What's it forgetting? And when I began all the childhood stuff, I curled up, I started weeping and I said, I don't want to do this. It just was flowing. And that's what I love about theaters. I'd, I'd created this, this vessel of my body that speaks the truth, whether I want, whether it's polite or not, you know what I mean? To some degree. And what started coming out was, I don't want to do this. I'm so sick of this story. Yeah. I'm so yeah. tired of talking about my childhood. I'm so sick yeah. of reliving this experience. And Dawn just supported me and said, keep, it wasn't, she didn't say keep going on the play. She said, yep, yep. Yep, keep going. And that's theater, right? She's like, purge, let that out. She grabbed my body. She's shaking and going, stop holding your breath. <sighs> when I got done, I went back, started over, boom. And there it was. And what I had realized was I had also taught my body that that shitty mess that I was the day before the performance went with the play. So now, two years later, I'm teaching my body, yeah, you don't need that part anymore. You can just go do the play and live moment to moment. And you don't have to worry about the plays moment to moment until it's places. You can have a regular day. You can have breakfast. You can make eye contact with your wife. You can talk, walk around and not obsess over this bit or that bit or let yourself get hijacked by it. And isn't that the perfect template for how to heal from trauma? That it doesn't have to run my life. I can have it, but yeah. I don't have to let it run my life. So do you feel now that then you're sort of an actor in the role a bit more yeah. that you can now Absolutely. tackle it as an actor? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And isn't it? Yeah. And it, because yeah. I've gotten to, I've gotten that far away from it to where I can go back to it, but I treat that Stefan almost like a character. Mm. And the proof is that, that what, I, and the audience helped me sort of figure this out by the way, is because the talkbacks we do a talk back after every show or a post-show discussion, whatever you want to call it. Again, um, learned from the native, uh, the indigenous community, specifically native voices and native earth or Yvette Nolan and Randy Reinhold specifically. They do talk, they would do talk backs after every show because they're acknowledging, uh, uh, let me be clearer, their mission in native voices is to develop original works by native Americans for the stage. It's that specific. And what Randy knew as an indigenous uh, um, theater maker, knew that what's going to come up is a lot of trauma because there's at least 600 years of trauma on this continent that we don't talk about. The, the genocide, removal, and oppression of Native Americans to claim the land that we now call America, that we try to argue about whether or not it was, they're not. They experienced it. So they're saying, yes, it is. We're making plays. We're writing plays. We're developing it. That's going to come up. So rather than getting your vehicles and drive home alone, let's talk about what came up right here in this, in this room where it happened. So I, and it was so powerful. It is so powerful to see that through Randy Reinhold's and Yvette Nolan's permission and advice, we began the same process for the communities where we're talking about the military trauma and or military training trauma or, or childhood. Let's have a post-show discussion right here in the room. So we do so. And in, 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 in doing that, we're making, well, let me stay on task. What I learned was when I perform and just grab a towel and stay in front of the audience, mm. they, f they fall into caregiver mode. They fall into a mode of taking care of me instead of being allowed to be an audience to purge 
what came up for them, they fall silent and more focused on me. What I learned was when I leave, my wife pointed this out. She said, when you leave, you towel off and you change into, we'll call it a costume, but street clothes, and then come out. They know that you've taken care of yourself. You've gone off. You clearly haven't killed yourself because you come out now. (laughs) But you're a different, you're now this different, this guy who wrote the play, who acted the play. You're now the artist and the person. But we can now as an audience go, Jesus, man, come on. That was a lot. That brought up my stuff. Or uh, Now I can hold space for them the way they were holding space for me. Does that make it, it makes total sense. I, um, I, I Let me see if I have a question in this, because what you just said brought up a, a memory for me of an acting teacher I had who said that he was in a show and he had to play an overweight character with glasses. And when he came out to do his curtain call, he would always make a point of taking off his glasses until one of his mentors told him, why are you always taking off your glasses? And he said, it's because you don't, you want everyone to know you're not associated with that person and that's not you. And you actually are separate. Is there a sense for you now that the audience almost needs you? This is going to sound harsher than I mean it to, but I can't think of a better way to say it. The audience almost needs to see you as dysfunctional to some degree rather than going, yep, I'm an actor and I just did that role for you that they need to stay in there for their sake so that they get the full value of your performance. Is, th- is, that, a con- is that a consideration? Is that even a thing? Or am I just it, making up stuff? When no, I, say that? I, I think, again, you're very astute. But the way I think I would phrase it is because I don't know what the audience needs. Mm. Um, and, and, and it's really a trap. And I think our theater uh, instruction in this country has led us down the path of trying to sort that out, sort out what the audience needs or wants Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. will like or what have you. We're lucky enough to where we perform for every varied community one can imagine from, from, you know, uh, fellow addicts in a recovery center to a mental health conference who are actually mental health practitioners, but may have their own Mm -hmm. stuff to the incarcerated, to theaters, to Shakespeare don't at all identify with the American military experience. So with that, it gives me the freedom to just be uh, not okay on stage. And and the power in in, uh, the cry havoc has taught me is it's okay to not be okay. And I learned that by the, from the audience. So by my not being okay and that being okay, right. Makes right, it right, okay. Right. Does that make sense? It, it right, does. So. I, I guess, let me, let me clarify what I'm thinking is because I'm almost thinking it on your behalf. If it drags you back there where you're like, Hey, I'm at a place uh, now where I'm an actor and yeah. I've, and I've done this a bunch and I'm giving this to you, but now you guys need me to be uh, something that I, I've kind of, I've, I've processed through this a little bit. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And I would, I would frame it as I, I consider it my responsibility. Mm-hmm. I consider it my responsibility to find, um, again, the brilliance of my wife, Dawn, uh, 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 said, she always says, go find the three that need to hear this. Because huh. I've been in some pretty challenging spaces, meaning where I was not welcomed with my view, with my theory, with you know any of this. Um, yeah, in several places. And she said, find the three that are you when you saw Richard III. 
be what Richard III was for you. Not not in not in a you know uh, an arrogant sense. Not like go out and be just yeah. be you. Go out and be not okay. Because when when I get in front of those audiences that that, that I de- you know glean inaccurately or not that they don't like me or don't want me. It's really challenging to be vulnerable. It's really challenging to yeah. not be okay in front of that audience. However, if I'm searching for my one to three, you know, young or, or, or versions of me when I was younger, then it helps me in particular. That's my mechanism through staying vulnerable, even in a space that might not lend itself to being vulnerable. Can I just ask where 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 did you not get a good reception? Where did where was that difficult? Well, here's the thing: is uh, in the end, it shows what a lie my eyes can be. I'm looking through a trauma lens, so when I see people sitting like this, I assume they don't give a shit. <laughs> but the reality is, they're physically taking care of themselves because what I'm bringing up is probably triggering them. So I'll have places to where I'm like, you know, they're eating out of my hands. I'm gonna get a standing O. They love me, and afterwards they're like. That was nice. That was lovely. And then you'll get a, I'll get a place to where I feel like, oh my God, this group, this group wants to hang me up and they're weeping and crying afterwards. Wow. We just don't know. But in particular, and I don't mean this, this is not, this shows the brilliance of the coordinators of this event, not, not a negative, but a positive. It was after the parade in New York, the Veterans Day parade. There's a place where all the veterans gather. So the coordinators allow mm. everyone who was in the parade to show up. And what they have is entertainment, right? Mm. But it, it, So they had, the, they had these wonderful singers who tour Yoso shows in the old style, like they're doing the old songs. And there was a band and there's a stand-up comedian. But it's mostly hundreds and hundreds of veterans who've been out all day or yeah. they're, they've been drinking all day. Right. And if they haven't been all day, they are now, right? And they really don't want to do any more. They want to unwind. And I, but, but, but there's a hunk of the program that's veterans getting up and, and we'll say promoting, and I mean that in a good way, promoting their veteran service organization. We were selected in the best way we felt was to show what we do, <clears throat> which is to interconnect the personal story and use Shakespeare to highlight that experience. Well, this room couldn't care. I, I could have, it felt like I could have lit myself on fire and they wouldn't have looked up at me any longer than they already were, which is not at all. However, again, in my wife's brilliance, I was having, a, I was in crisis and I'm texting her going, this is bullshit. I'm not going to do it. They don't want me. I, I feel bad for the people who brought me in I, and I'll just apologize. And she said, go out and find the three people. I went out, I did it. And it was as though there was a spotlight coming on. And there were three people that were riveted, that were fixed, fixated on me the way I was on Richard III when I first saw it, saw the play. And afterwards came up and said, that's me. I'm going through that experience. Wow. Gave them my card and said, come join us. We have free classes on Monday nights. Come help, pur- let, let us help you carry that load and to purge some of this poison. So it's it's tough. That's what that one was, though. That, that's that's incredible, and that, what great advice. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking about all the times in my life that would have been good to think about. Find the three. That's that's, that's incredible way of dealing with that. Is there sort of um, a sense of perverse irony? I don't know if it's perverse irony. Maybe just irony. But uh, <laughs> that you're uh, that you know you were done with the military to join the theater. And now you're doing military stuff in the theater and then you're like, son of a bitch, I want to go 
do Noel Coward for crying out loud. Why yeah. the hell am I doing this all, all the fucking time? Is there yeah. any sense of that? There is, there is. There's, there's multiple, uh, there's irony on multiple levels. And I think perverse is probably the, the perfect word for it because, yeah, because when I got out, I didn't want to be a, I didn't want to be a veteran. You know, right. when, when I grew up, I grew up with the Vietnam veteran era veterans. And to me, you know, I, I say this with awareness to me, they're all like these gray haired, bearded guys, you know, that drank too much and, and, you know, but they were wearing the t-shirts, Vietnam veteran, or they were completely anti that and they're living off in the woods. I've done both and I work with both. So yeah, I, I really didn't want to be a veteran, but then I found that, you know, the, again, the power of theater, we did, uh, uh, Kelly Wiki Davis was our, our movement and dance <clears throat> teacher at Trinity Rep at grad school. And she did the play Tracers by, mm. um, right, by, um, mm. not, da not David Rabe, he did streamers and um, that series, um, Sorry, um, uh, I know, I, I know I what I'm brain name. farting. I, I know, I, I am too. But it was Vietnam veterans, right? And they were they were a, they were a troop of Vietnam veterans. I'm so embarrassed. I know it just shows that we've been in pandemic lockdown. John Defusco. John Defusco. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well done. Yeah, no, so, thanks. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Google. Yeah. So then to get to to find out in grad school because I didn't grow up with theater. I didn't know all these names. Yeah. I didn't know that the the Greek playwrights were all military veterans. And I didn't know that Vietnam veterans used theater to heal. Um so I'm doing tracers with Kelly Wiki Davis and in this this band and then she's bringing in Vietnam veterans to be you know to give give us guidance and give us some insight. And I'm realizing, wow, wow, I didn't I thought I was alone in my experience. I didn't know that this was this power of the theater was used. So then it started pulling me back in to be more curious about what I was mm -hmm. so resistant to, which was my veteranness, if you will. Um, Cause I didn't feel like I deserved it. I wasn't in Vietnam and I wasn't right. in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that still will creep up, but I realized it's not about that. Theater and art is about the human experience and where do we connect with each other and where do, where do we disconnect in our experience? So if, if my veteranness gets me into rooms and helps me, uh, or, or rather helps my brothers and sisters in arms and healing to find an avenue out of their stuck points, then I almost have a responsibility to do so. Not just, not just a calling, not just a, a, a kindred uh, emotion or, or kindred spirit, but a, a responsibility to go into those places that I might be resistant to and, and find them. And the same thing ended up being true with my addiction and recovery, by the way, as well. Right. I, when I got sober, I'm like, those fucking losers. You know what I mean? And then like, oh my yeah. God, I'm a fucking loser. And then I realized, oh, we're not fucking losers. We're, we're severely, we're, as Gabor Mate says, it is too painful for us to be alive sober. That mm -hmm. we have to go, we have to turn to other means just to exist. And isn't that, isn't that worthy of compassion? So then it shifted my, my whole thinking to go into that environment as well. Do you do other work? Would you, like, if, uh, if the, would you ever, obviously, I assume if somebody offered you a Broadway role or something, you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, great. But would you seek it out? Would you go, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested and open and available for other work. Or are you in a place where you're like, you know, I'm mining something right now and I can't get out of this mine just yet. I, I'm, I, I just tapped a vein and I gotta, I gotta see what's left here. Yeah. I, I, 
I'm ADHD, so this would be no surprise that I do both, right? I bounce around. I do my, in fact, uh, yeah, my wife and I uh, worked at Syracuse last year, Syracuse Stage and Syracuse University, and it was through a fellowship, a TCG foundation, uh, TCG fo- fo- fellowship called Fox Foundation Fellowship, hmm. unrelated to the news channel or, or, or any of that. It's a hmm. foundation. However, when we were at uh, Syracuse Stage in residence, he then asked us, hey, uh, Bob Hupp, the artistic director, said, I've got this, there's this two-hander play called Annapurna, would you two consider doing mm. it? I'm like, yes, of course. And, and in fact, in a week, we go to Cincinnati Shakespeare to both run decruit courses, teach some of their actors and their veterans in that community decruit so they can continue de- doing decruit on their own, and be in Comedy of Errors. So we get to do Shakespeare, wow. and we'll we'll also do a likely do Cry Havoc there. We'll also probably do one or three of our our new adaptations of Shakespeare. So yes, we do other work. We created these three new pieces for when there isn't other work. Um, we created these three new pieces because we think they lend themselves to very specific a- uh, aspects of trauma to deepen the conversation post mm. Cry Havoc, if you will. Um, so yeah, we do do other work, and Kate Hamill. Um, is a dear friend of mine who writes a lot of adaptations of, uh, or has, I think has now done all of Jane Austen's, adapted mm. all of her book uh, novels into plays. Um, whenever she calls, uh, I'm like, yes. <laughs> I'm not even, and awesome. in, 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 yeah, this yeah. will show you that the community is, I, you know, for me, Jane Austen, I'm like, yeah, sure. But then her adaptations make me want to do them. They make me want to be in the, in the play and and tell this story that I considered somewhat antiquated. But same thing with Shakespeare. I, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'm so passionate about it, and then I'll do a whole play, and sometimes go, ah, "Is this is this universal?" You know what I mean? Because we work yeah, with communities yeah. also. I mean, in the African American community and the Indigenous community, it was used as a weapon. Literally, Shakespeare was weaponized. So they have a different relationship sometimes with Shakespeare. When, oh, when, worked, when was it weaponized? Explain that. Was so that it, was, um, in, uh, it was very often used to uh, uh, force people, and not just in North America, but in South Africa and other places in Canada as well. It was used as a weapon um, to force people to not speak their language, but to speak the English language. And it was used used as um, as somewhat morality plays it was used as a device to call as part of the colonization process that this is what's considered great art these are the great artists sure here are the right and also the language itself and and in the indigenous community they they cut their they took them from their homes put them in boarding schools cut their hair told them speak english do these plays so to have shakespeare incorporated in that model right the avert of course the 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 aversion to it the because Shakespeare was inflicted on them, it was inflicted on me. Not in. I mean, I, mean, I was going to say to be to be fair, almost almost every school kid gets Shakespeare inflicted on them. But yeah, that's right. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So I and I think it also may, it can arguably make us more empathetic to those who it had been. You know, and in South Africa, um, the the what a gr- this is shows the great. Uh, paradox that we're up against. Um, Nelson Mandela, when he was in prison, when he asked for, they could each get one book, if I recall the story correctly, and he asked for the complete works of Shakespeare. Now, in comparison, when South Africa is trying to throw off the the chains of apartheid, when it's trying to 
find its identity and go through truth and the truth and reconciliation process somewhere along the line afterwards, they had actually, I don't know that they banned it, um, but they stopped doing Shakespeare's works. And there was, of course, this big argument of how could you? He talks about the human experience, but I, 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 st- I compl- who am I to disagree or agree? But in, in, again, in my hubris was an advocate saying, no, it's their nation. It's their identity. Allow them to find what their storytelling is. Sure. If Shakespeare's, Shakespeare can survive, you know, he's not, if he's universal, if he truly is universal, he'll come back into the process. But allow everyone their process sure. by forcing him and be him being forced onto people, being told, "No, he's great. He's the greatest." Now he's being weaponized, in my opinion. I see what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I think it's definitely the. Uh, I think just like with, as we said, like for even school kids in the United States, I think he's just the the most shining example of Western civilization, in because he boils down so much the politics, the verbiage. The mm-hmm. emotion that it's like, okay, I can't explain all of Western civilization to you necessarily, but here's this, and this is going to yeah. give you, uh, you know, a, a smorgasbord or a cornucopia of of Western civilization, um, uh, of of the best you could say of Western civilization of the capturing the emotions. So yeah, I definitely see how uh, a lot of times people make you eat your broccoli, and, uh, yeah. and especially in our schools, and and go yeah. here you go, and then people get yeah. turned off to Shakespeare for years, and I see yeah. how that could be taken in multiple ways um sorry and I go ahead. Just very yeah. quickly even though we I, I unfortunately need to wrap up soon no no no, no, you're no good. Yeah, no, no <laughs> but, i know but i do want to say no that worries. um uh, uh i hope it, uh, my apology to the indigenous uh, community if if i mischaracterize that and i think what i would say is that you or anyone who's interested in more to actually investigate it um, more fully on your own and or even ask um, um, uh, native voices um, uh, our friend Randy's now retired but they but th- our friends in the indigenous community w- would be able to articulate more fully more yeah, deeply sure. that sure. term weaponized I was giving as much as I could and I'm not qualified to give no that worries no, no 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 you're totally qualified to have your own opinion I'm, I'm cool with that no worries here um, yeah. but yeah thanks for also pointing people in the direction to, to look into that more if they want um, Stefan, listen, you've been wildly generous with your time. I, I so appreciate this. Um, I am going to fish for ways to somehow link up with you in the, in the near or distant future. Um, I so appreciate this. Tell everybody where they can find you. Obviously, we're going to post links in the show notes and all that. But tell everybody the easiest way to find out what you're up to and how they can tap into what you're doing. Thank you. Um, thanks for offering this as well. We, we are, um, our website is www.decrute.org. Decrute spelled just like recruit, but with a D, D-E-C-R-U-I-T. And it is .org. Um, <laughs> some guy in Kansas owns .com and was putting the bid up on it. So that'll be a while before we can afford that. Um, also, we're on Facebook. Um, my, on my Facebook, I have a page that's the Decruit page. We're on Twitter and Instagram as well. And it's um, Instagram is Decruit Vets. Uh, but I'll, I'll give you all that info. So you can no post. worries. And it'll, and it'll be in <laughs> the show notes. Everybody that. look down, of course. Um, come back. Let us know how you're doing. Absolutely. We'll stay in touch. I can't wait to have you back on here and hear about Vice versa. all the new things. Thank you. Yeah, awesome, let, let us know as well so we can share anything that you're doing. And let's work together soon. Yeah, I would love that. I would love right. that. That was the savage wonder of Stefan Wolfert.
I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, check out the show notes. Check out Cry Havoc. Um, obviously, we talk a lot about it. Uh, if you haven't seen it uh, before this episode, do yourself a favor and check it out now. Um, just a wildly entertaining show. I think you'll all really enjoy it. You've been listening to Savage Wonder, podcast for warriors and artists and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. Check out everything that's going on with us at vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. That is the best catch-all place to find out what we're up to. You can, of course, check out our Instagram. That's pretty up-to-date. So if you go to Instagram, go to vetreptheater, V-E-T-R-E-P, theater, all one word, and that's E-R, not R-E for theater, vetreptheater. That's our address both on Twitter and on Instagram. If you're on Facebook, go to Veterans Repertory Theater. I know nobody knows how to spell repertory. It is R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y, and again, theater is E-R for us, not R-E. While you're there, give us a follow, give us a like. By all means, feel free to send us feedback. But if you're also happening to listen to us on iTunes, go ahead and send us feedback there. And while you're doing so, if you could attach it to a five-star review, that would be dynamite. That would help us out a lot. We would definitely appreciate that. Um, But if you're not a social media person and you're not digging that whole scene, no worries. Go to vetrep.org. See all the stuff that we have going on, our Write Loud events, obviously this podcast, the literary blog. So if you like reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, you can subscribe to the Savage Wonder Literary Blog at our Now Playing tab at vetrep.org. And also our upcoming Savage Wonder Festival, which um, Stefan can't make, by the way. (laughs) It would have been nice, but he's super busy, and that's a great first world problem for him uh, that he's being pulled in too many directions. But uh, our Savage Wonder Festival is coming up on May 29th, the day before Memorial Day. I always say we're taking back Memorial Day, but we're not really taking it back from anyone. We're just kind of, you know, doing our part to honor Memorial Day, just the same way Christmas isn't really about supposed to be about the presents. Memorial Day is not supposed to be about just kicking off summer. And we felt it would be a fitting tribute to kick off Memorial Day and celebrate and honor Memorial Day with an artistic treatment uh, of remembrance. So we're bringing in music acts, everything from metal to classical music, everything from poetry to dance. Uh, It is going to be a wildly awesome cornucopia of artistic um, endeavors. And the one thing I always say to people is this isn't going to be a, uh, a veteran talent show, you know, the veterans we're bringing out are veterans that are in the arts, that are, are professional, um, or as professional as you can be. I mean, it's tough to be a professional poet, um, but are publishing as poets and and actively in the poetry community. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a professional uh, group of artists that you're going to be listening to. So, if for some reason you know the veteran thing doesn't move you, you know, don't feel like you got to come to this festival just out of sympathy or charity. Uh, come because you want to see some badass badass uh work whether it's our visual artists whether it's our bands and our musical talent whether it is the poetry whether it's the dance company with ramon baca and exit 12 um there's just some very cool stuff that's going to be happening so uh 
come. Uh, you can find out all the details at vetrep.org. I don't think our website, well, I don't know. It might be up by the time you're listening to this episode. Uh, so if it is, it'll be at savagewonder.com. All one word, savagewonder.com. Uh, you can go there and find out all the details about the festival. And if that's not live yet, for some reason, go to vetrep.org, go to our now playing tab, and you'll see uh, all the links and, and a bunch of information there anyway uh, that'll kind of clue you into what's going on um, and where we're having it and all the other details that you'll want to know. So uh, obviously, got a lot of irons in the fire, not to mention we got a right loud event before then. And oh, by the way, our 2022 season is kicking off that first weekend of April. So we got a whole lot of stuff going on. Go to vetrep.org and you can see all of our lines of effort and everything you want to know about what we're up to. Last bit of housekeeping. If you want to submit your work to Veterans Repertory Theater or to our literary blog, for that matter, go to vetrep.org, go to our submissions tab, and you will see all the information you could ever hope to have about how to submit, uh, why to submit, where to submit uh, your work to us. So check that out if you are a writer or aspire to be and you would like us to see your work. As always, thanks to our producer, Michael Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.